0: Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. I'm going to ask you guys to stand. Uh, We One of the things we've been doing since we've come back is something that the church has done. Um, It's a tradition of of many churches for hundreds of years now, um, is to stand when we read God's word. And we're doing this as an acknowledgement that God is smarter than we are, that his words mean more than ours do, that this is a gift that he's given us. And at the end of this, I'm going to say this is the word of the Lord and and the tradition in church is to say, uh, thanks be to God. We've done that in different ways, because that comes out as thanks be to God, which doesn't sound super thankful. So today, what I'm going to ask you to do is cheer, okay? I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord, you're going to cheer, because God gave us his word. Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 20, and when the hour came, Jesus reclined at table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God, and he took a cup. All right, good job. You guys can have a seat. Let me ask you a question uh, that came into my mind this week. If do you guys, if you're like me, do you have uh, movies when you're flipping through the channels on a Saturday afternoon, or if you just have nothing to do on a Thursday night, you're flipping through the channels? Are there movies that come up that you're like, I have to watch that? I've watched it like a hundred times, but I have to watch it again. Does anybody have movies like that? Okay, lay a couple of them on me. Ooh, the Hunger Games. (laughs) I'm going to ask you to like consider why these are the shows that come to your mind and Dumb and Dumber is going to take some therapy maybe, okay? What, are, what were some other ones? Bob, Princess, oh, Princess Prize, good. Rudy, nice. Shawshank, man, lots of them. So you guys, I thought maybe I'm the only one that does this, but I'm not. For me, Casablanca, nice. Um, for me, the, the movies that I just can't pass up, the Jason Bourne movies, uh, like any of them, because they're all pretty much the same to me, um, they come to my mind. Uh, this is not going to be popular, I don't think. But national treasure, anybody? Um, that is one that I can't go by. And then there's a couple scenes where I don't necessarily want to watch the whole movie, but if Gladiator comes on and it's near the scene where he takes his mask off and says to Joaquin Phoenix, I am Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the north and general to the true king or whatever it is. You know what I mean? You know that scene? Everybody know that scene? Oh, man. And in Cars, at the end, when when the, the last race and things aren't going well for Lightning McQueen and who shows up as the crew chief? The Hudson Hornet. Oh, man, what a scene. Honestly, I'm going to be honest, too honest. Like, I tear up a little bit almost every time I see that scene. Um, because the stories resonate. We watch him, and I thought, like, what is it about the stories, and you have to ask yourself, that resonate? And Jason Bourne, like, I realized this years ago because there were some books that a lot of guys at church read by an author named Vince Flynn, and the character was a guy named Mitch Rapp, maybe. And after a while, we would talk about it. I'm like, guys, here's why we read this. He is all-powerful. And Jason Bourne is all-powerful. He will kick your butt one-on-one, and he will take on the entire CIA and take them down. You know what I mean? He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's always three, four, five steps ahead of the people that he's against. There Maybe the quintessential Jason Bourne scene is, and my kid showed me a Studio C video of this, is where he says, uh, he says, you look tired, Pam. You should get some rest. You know that scene? And um, And he's like talking to her on the phone, but he's Looking at her, and then the music plays, and she's like, "Where is he? He's like the all-seeing eye of God, um, and he's all, he's good. He's the one that's been wronged, and he's going to make things right. And it's going to he's going to require sacrifice from him. And there's a humility, all uh, powerful, all knowing, all good, and humble, sacrificial. Remind you of anybody? Yeah, he's Jesus. He's Jesus. Now, th- in those stories and books like he's jesus and gets to sleep with whoever he wants to so we're off you know what i mean but that's there's something that resonates in that national treasure i think is like this great mystery and we got to solve it and it's deep and it's hard but at the end the treasure is bigger than you could ever imagine it's beyond your wildest dreams i think that's life and heaven is real i think that's what that is and the gladiator scene and the hudson hornet scene there is a massive theme of maybe redemption or vindication Like, life was complicated. It didn't go quite the way it was supposed to, but at the end, um, it's all going to come out in the wash. And Russell Crowe is a general who became a slave who died to save an empire, which should also remind you of somebody that we talk about every single week here. Uh, But they resonate deeply within your soul. Now, we're finishing a series called Why You Need the Church More Than Ever. And um, what I want to talk about for the last week is communion. Because I think what Jesus is saying is like, you get lots of messages coming at you. Like you're flipping through the channels of life. And this story is the most important story that in helping you understand what your life is all about. It's gonna shape your understanding of your past, of your present, of your future, of who you are, of who you're not, of who the people are around you, of what you're here for. It's this story and he wants us like stopping on this channel regularly Um, and so i want to preach this message in part because i wonder if the church doesn't get bored with the gospel do you get bored uh, with the gospel how many of you grew up in a church where the gospel was not um, central or not even really very important uh, I grew up. We went to church just about every week. We may have even taken communion because I have like some memory of the big silver platter with the little things in it. Anybody? And um, but the gospel was not a message that I heard. I asked my dad later because my um, my fo- we start stopped going there when my folks split up when I was in middle school. And then my dad later had an experience with the Lord where he really felt like he understood the gospel and what Jesus had done for him. Um, and he went back to that church and asked the guy, and I think the guy said, like, oh, if I preach that, people wouldn't be happy with, with that message, you know? And so it was true. They hadn't, they hadn't preached that. I was talking with someone this week about um, a Methodist camp that his family went to every week growing up, and they went back, he went back there with his family, and so they had, you know, a message every night or something like that, and he said it was driving me nuts because they would not preach the gospel. <laughs> uh, that's not what it was about. I remember when we started the ministry that became the church, and so i started speaking every week and realizing man i feel like once a month i need to preach a message that just you will not believe how much god loves you um without something to do about it because if you understand the gospel like then you'll understand what you're supposed to to do about when we started the church um ken cantrell uh we went out to lunch one day and i didn't know ken super well at that point he's like um he said hey he said me and my wife uh we sit up in the balcony this is the old building we sit up in the balcony and pass notes every week and and uh i'm like okay and he's like you want to know what we pass notes about i'm like probably not but go ahead and uh <laughs> he said um he said we're asking the question could this sermon be preached in a mormon temple or did jesus have to die on the cross for this sermon to be true and that really like struck me it was a great question you know and so i i i try and do that like every message has the gospel in it because every passage about like not every we're probably backed off just a tiny bit um, but it has to be central um there are a couple guys that early in the life of the church and both these guys had tremendous respect for in in like separate conversations they both are grown up in church but they're like hey kind of seems like you preach the same message every week and i'm like geez and uh and so we talked that out. And, and both of them, within six months to a year, came back. And, and one of them, through tears that I didn't understand, was like, oh man, I get it now. It's Because sometimes it's not central. We've wrestled with communion um, for years. We The church we came out of, I think, had communion maybe once a quarter. It was a separate service. And I couldn't understand why, why churches do that. Um, but that's just what it was. And we thought we should do this more. And then we went to a conference, I think, before we started the church where they did what we did for years where they'd tear off the bread and dip it in the, in the juice. And we thought, that's cool. We're like, is that legal? Can we do that? Like, is that church legal, you know? And so that's the way that we did it. And there was a, a week we were talking about communion. It, again, this is back at the old building where I realized like my language was come and take communion. And I thought, oh, I should never say that again because this is not something that you take. This is something, this is the gift of God that you receive and I thought, man, maybe we have this completely wrong, and should we be priests that stand up here and, and offer you the elements? And I still kind of think that's probably what we ought to do, and so if we start doing that in the next few months, don't be shocked. Like, there's a reason for it, because I don't, I don't like it being so individual, and we get to take it. Um, it's something that we receive Uh, and we have a friend who they greet people on the way to the table. We thought maybe we should do that. John recently was in an Anglican church where they do that. I'm not exactly sure what we should be doing, but I know we should be doing it, and I know why. There's a a book that I read um, in the past few months. Well, it didn't take me a few months to read it. I just didn't, you know, it's not that big of a book. But, um, But he has a line at the end where he says, communion is not a puzzle to solve. It is a mystery to enter into and it is so i want to talk about that for a few minutes what it is why we need it how we do it and so what is communion what what is actually happening here So, this is again this passage jesus took a cup when he'd given thanks he said take this divide it among yourselves for i tell you that from now on i will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of god comes and he took bread and when given thanks broke it and gave it to them saying this is my body which is given to you do this in remembrance of me and likewise the cup after they'd eaten saying uh, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So what happens when we take communion? Well, one thing that happens for sure is we remember. Um, do this in remembrance of me. There is a, a like, we're recollect recalling the story uh, of Jesus. Now, Jesus did this uh, with his disciples during a Passover meal. And the Passover was something that Jews celebrated from the time of the Exodus to the time of Jesus, and still today, Jewish people celebrate the Passover in the form of a, a Seder meal. And so God had told them that that time period in the history of Israel, the Israelites were um, slaves to the Egyptian empire. And so they cried out to God, and uh, God came to Moses and said, go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And so Moses did that, and Pharaoh said, no, not going to do it. And the ten plagues come, and the last of them is the angel of death. And the angel of death is like a foreshadowing of God saying, I am going to make all things right. But to make all things right, he's got to take care of the wrong. And to take care of the wrong, that is going to involve judgment because sin has consequences. So it's a foreshadowing of that judgment. And he said to the Israelites, here's what you do to protect yourself from the angel of death. From death um, coming to you is is they had the Passover lamb. And so they would take a lamb and they had to sacrifice it. It was a year old without blemish, don't break any bones um, when you sacrifice the lamb, and then take the blood of the lamb and put it on the lintels of your doorpost, and the angel of death will see that, and it will pass over you, and so that's where the term Passover comes from, but you've got blood of the lamb. They had unleavened bread to remind them that they had to go quickly because of God's rescue for them, and so that was all part of the Passover ceremony, and so when Jesus is saying, hey, this is my body that's been broken for you and my blood, um, during a Passover meal, he's saying some like revolutionary things, like that that Passover lamb was not about the lamb and not about the exodus, but it was about Jesus, and it was about something much broader, and so they were slaves to the Egyptians, but the Egyptians represented sin, and so we are slaves to our sin. And we need the blood of jesus to pass over and in the time when he says that to his disciples they don't have a lamb they just have the bread and the cup and he is the lamb and the apostle john or john the baptist said behold the lamb of god that takes away the sins of the world and so when he says do this and remember to me we're recalling jesus but we're recalling that jesus is throughout the whole story Uh, i think we're recalling that you know the story of joseph in the old testament is about a man that was sold out by his brothers and then he suffered Um, so that he could save the family and that is a picture of Jesus we're recalling Abraham taking Isaac up on Mount Moriah and God says you know God gave the promise to Abraham you'll be a great nation you'll have a land and so he starts to make a nation he gives him a son but then says give me your son back and I was preaching that years ago and thought man this is a horrible test why did you make him do this it's like just so crazy and then I realized it was a picture of a father's love for his son and the tension of giving up his son as a sacrifice and then i read it happened in the exact place where jesus goes to the cross and so it's a 2000 year picture before jesus that we recall when we take communion we recall the words of isaiah when he says um, he speaks about the suffering servant and he's prophesying about jesus he says, surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way. And that is like an an encapsulation of what our sin is that we have turned our own way that we have thought our words are smarter than God's words uh, and the Lord has laid on Christ the iniquity of us all. Uh, we remember Jesus uh, he, he got in a conversation after he fed the 5,000 he got in a conversation with the with the folks that were there the crowd about Moses and manna coming down from heaven and he says truly truly I say to you it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread from heaven but my father that gives you the true bread from heaven for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world and they said sir give us this bread always and Jesus said to him I am the bread of life He who, whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me will never thirst and then he takes it a step further and says to these folks truly truly I say to you Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. And he is foreshadowing communion and the cross. And many of his disciples heard it, and they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And this story, communion, it is a hard saying. It is a hard saying. Uh, when I flip through the channels and I stop on Jason Bourne, it's not because I want to be rescued by Jason Bourne, right? I want to be Jason Bourne. <laughs> that's the story that I want. I want a little soundtrack to play when I walk around. Like, I think that would be super cool. Uh, and people to hear it and be like, oh, man, here comes Jeff. Uh, that's the story that I'm after. Um, I don't need to be vindicated by, like, Russell Crowe and the Hudson Hornet. Jesus is the one that's vindicated, and I'm a part of the empire that's going to be saved because of it. Jesus is the hero, but most of the stories that we take in are trying to find a way for us to be the hero, right? And it's a hard teaching. You are not the hero. You need a hero, and Jesus is the hero, and that's the story that we need over and over again And what was the hard teaching for these folks. And Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, his disciples, he said, do you take offense at this? And it is offensive uh, because it tells us of our need. And after many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him, Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Like it's your words that we need, not ours we've believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God and so when we take communion, we remember all of that, all of that and so much more like has the possibility to come to mind when 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 we 're taking this. We participate now this will be a little bit um, technical for a minute, and this is the puzzle that that the church has been trying to solve for uh, for 2,000 years. How many of you grew up Catholic? Um, do you know the word for the Catholic practice of this? I had to like go back to seminary stuff. It's transubstantiation is what Catholics think happen when this, and we are more familiar with the with the concept that comes along with trans now than we ever have been as a culture, right? It changed, and so Catholic folks believe that It's Catholic teaching that this, when we take it, actually becomes the literal, it transforms into the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus. We don't believe that. I don't believe that. I don't think you should believe that for a number of reasons that are scriptural. Jesus uses metaphorical language, but a lot of times, and I think he's doing it then, his body is actually holding the bread when he says, this is my body. Um, There's Christ offered a single sacrifice for all time and sat down at the right hand of the Father, so we don't have to reenact that sacrifice over and over again but that is one view of it Um, there's another view consubstantiation a con is with and so lutherans believe that it's both Um, we don't believe that for the same reasons there's a memorial view that says we're just remembering and that's it and then there's a view um, that that i've seen labeled the participatory view that something happens but we're not going to fully grasp what it is and so in first corinthians 10 paul says this the cup of blessing that we bless is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And so there's language that says we participate with him um, when we take the, uh, the bread and the cup. The word participate in the Greek is koinonia. That word is communion. And so we commune with him at some level when we are um, taking part in the body and the bread of Christ. And so I don't know, I don't know what that means. It's more than just remembering it. I think it's just more, it's more than just a mental exercise. I think there's something spiritual that happens when we are truly remembering what Christ has done for us and um this guy when when i read through him he talks about how time is a is a construct for our benefit um, and god is outside of it and so he can be present with us in the midst of it and space is the same thing and so he is with us in some way as we take part in the bread and the cup so we participate with him and then we we proclaim and so paul goes on in the next chapter to say Um, to the Corinthian church, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he'd given thanks, broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you, do this in remembrance of me, and in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, and then he says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so, there is an element of proclamation that happens uh, when we do this. I try and proclaim the gospel uh, every week when I preach. But when you take communion, you are proclaiming the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Um, You know, baptism is the other big sacrament symbol that we participate in. And in baptism, we are proclaiming the gospel that we have died with Christ and we have been raised to new life in Christ. We proclaim that we are with christ it is a public declaration of the gospel and our belief in the gospel and communion has a proclamation aspect to it now why do we need it as i said the, the story shapes shapes you uh what we consume matters it shapes us we know this physically right you are what you eat and so we take care with what we put in our bodies, or if we don't take care, we feel bad about not taking care of what we put in our bodies. My kid just started working at Crumble Cookies. You've been to Crumble Cookies yet? Um, he's worked, like, he, a couple times he's supposed to have gotten off at eight, but he stayed until closed just so he could bring us home a big box of cookies, because they, they just give the leftover cookies to their workers. And so we've had giant boxes of cookies and you can cut them in quarters and feel like, oh, I only ate a quarter of a cookie, but a quarter of a crumble cookie is a cookie. Uh, they're ginormous. And so that's not that's not great for what I take in physically. We don't we we don't pay as much attention to what we take in emotionally and spiritually. The messages that we receive all the time and and whether we resist those messages or consume those messages and how they shape us. We do, if you have kids, you do. Like, you're cognizant of their screen time because you know that that's probably affecting them in a negative, uh, negative way. I had, I had dinner this week with um, a guy that used to work here, Pat Downing, and he spent some time working with students at the church he was at in D.C. and read a book called Digital Babylon. It's just saying, like, what our kids, like, they enter into a whole different world digitally, and you better know what it is because it's just um, shaping us. And it's shaping, it's shaping us. That's why I started with the movies that we can't pass up because there's messages behind that that we want to consume. It's the apps that you traffic most frequently on your phone, and that means something. I read a couple years ago that we, we have an average of like 40 apps on our phone. It's probably up from that now, but we only use about five of them. And so what are the five that you use the most and why? The websites that we traffic. Um, I saw this this week. It's, a, it's from Henry Nowen, um, And it's the five lies of a, about identity that, that are preached to us. That we're receiving these all the time. And so these, these were the five lies I am what I have, I am what I do, I am what other people think of me or say about me, uh, I am nothing more than my worst moment, or I am nothing less than my best moment. Those resonate with you? Someone raise their hand because you're making me feel real bad. Thank you. Because I saw it, and like in, an, in a blink, I was like, you're a bad pastor. These shouldn't be as true of you as they are. Like that's how I think about things, you know, like, oh, man. They don't, it's not what it used to be in my heart, in my soul, but it's not what it's supposed to be. And so if we believe those lies, it's going to shape how we live, you know? If I believe that I am what I have, w- what's my app probably? It's Amazon, you know, or some upgraded version of it, like nicer things than Amazon. If I believe I am um, what I do, you know, how will I respond? Well, I'm going to try and do more. I, I'm going to have an endless things of thing, stuff to do. I'm going to work like crazy. You know what I mean? Like I'm going to be my accomplishments. Um, if I believe that I am what other people say or think of me, what are my apps? Facebook and Instagram. Yeah. Um, if I'm nothing more than my worst moment, man, do you need the body and blood of Jesus? But you also need it if you're nothing less than your than your uh, best moment. And so this is meant. It's meant to to be like the counter story that comes into us all the time against the stories that we're constantly receiving. Um, It reminds us about who Jesus is and and who we are. Jesus at one point asked his disciples, who who does the world, who do people say that I am? And they said a teacher and a prophet. Well, if Jesus is a teacher and a prophet, and that is the most common answer that we get today um, in our world. And you may think that, that Jesus is a teacher and a prophet. But then how do you respond to Jesus? And you respond like he's optional and he might have some good advice to give to you every once in a while. And so every once in a while, you'll check in with Jesus. Uh, he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, the Holy One of God. You are the Christ. You are the Savior. And if Jesus is a Savior, that's a whole different category. And how are you going to respond to Jesus? You're not going to pay attention to him every once in a while. You know, you're gonna give your life to him. I uh, this made me think of a um, a story. This would be a good story to take in. Uh, it's a book called The Candy Bombers about the Berlin Airlift right after World War II, and um, in the when the Berlin Airlift happened, Berlin was in East Germany, and the Russians we supplied West Berlin, um, which was like the part aligned with with West Germany and and Britain, and the United States, and everything. Um, we supplied it by rail uh, through a train that went through East Germany, and the Russians cut it off. They basically laid siege to West Berlin and dared us to fly planes over, and so we did, daring them to shoot our planes down, and they just flew, they just had this, like, ch- chain, non-stop, 24 hours a day, planes going in to supply um, West Berlin. It was a standoff, and, uh, and they, the pilots realized that there were kids that would line up by the fence next to the airport, and i mean berlin had been decimated these kids had absolutely nothing and so they took their candy ration and and tied their handkerchief to it It as one pilot that started doing this and as they on their approach to the airport they flew over this fence and they threw out their candy and then they realized more kids came the more candy they threw out and it really made a difference to these kids and not just the kids but their parents because the parents thought well these soldiers like really care about our kids. And it became this giant PR thing for the United States in fighting the Berlin Airlift and whether those um, West Berlin folks would go to East Berlin or they would hold out as the as the West tried to figure out how to supply Berlin. It was a huge deal. And now, 50 years after it was over, they, um, they just put an advertisement in the newspaper that said the candy bombers are coming back and they're gonna be at the end of this airstrip. And so if you wanna like say thank you to them, Go for it. They had no idea who would show up. People were there. They lined up before dawn, and they were there until after dark, saying thank you. I mean, and so 50 years later, these kids are now in their late 50s, in their 60s, and they came back to say thank you to these pilots because there was a form of salvation in what they did, and they were so grateful. Man, that thing wrecks me every time I think about it. Like, that is what this is. Is like, thank you because you have saved us. Who does the world say that we are? Man, tons of messages. You know, I think a lot of times a, a fairly competent person in need of some guidance who if they could just get their act together, like if you tried hard enough, you could get your act together and do whatever you dreamed of. But who does the gospel say that you are? That you're made in the image of God? by that God, and so every single one of us has the same amount of inherent dignity and value because God created us, and that speaks into so many things in our world, Um, but that we have a spiritual cancer that will kill us, and those words in Isaiah, it's just as simple as we have chosen our own way. It's why we're standing up to read this because we're recognizing that his words are so much more than our words. They hold so much more value than our words. And going our own way has huge consequences, and we can't stop doing it, and we are spinning out of control in different areas of our lives and making a complete mess of things. I, um, earlier this week, or last week, um, my oldest is going to college. Uh, He's not here today. We'll talk about him. Uh, Maybe they're tuning in. Uh, And... um, so there were three, Dan, Shannon, and um, Alan. I had, we sat down for dinner, and these guys have known Michael his entire life. So this is an unbelievable opportunity. And just ask them to speak into him and things that they, they see that encourage them and that they think are great about him and things that, they, areas that could trip him up and things that they heard and experienced in that time of life that they thought he should know about. It was great. But in doing that, we all were kind of reflecting on ways that we'd made a mess of things that we were spinning out of control and how God, in his grace, rescued us from those things, but that the consequences of those things, some of them still, like, resonate with us today, like you can't get out of them. And I just left there thinking, like, A, when we experience the consequences of our sins, we are living in hell. We are living out a bit of hell. And it's just a little bit of hell, but we're living out hell. And that Michael is going to be surrounded by a lot of people that have no, like, reason to value the words of the Lord and, like, the opportunity that he has to show them a bit of heaven in the midst of that. Like, we are a mess, and if someone doesn't come and rescue us, then it's, we're going to make hell, right? We don't even need help with that. Like, it's just what's going to happen when we go our own way. And this tells us we're, we're loved by him, and how much and we will always know that we're loved by him you never have to wonder if he loves you right now because while we were yet sinners Christ died for us and every week we get that message again and again because every week we need that message again and again cuz we forget it so fast and that we have hope because that God who made us and redeemed us and overcame he overcame the power of sin and death and rose from the dead and then he called us into his family he called us into I mean Paul's language about how we're baptized into the body of Christ that when we take communion this because we partake in one body we become one body. The language we have on the wall out there welcome home is because this is family. We are a part of the family of Christ and that's who we are because of what Christ has done for us. And all of that flies in the face of the lies that we're getting every day there is a war going on in our soul between these messages and this is really we can get so like used to it but it's so beautiful it's baptism is like a work of art and so is communion like what a fantastic idea and so representative and visceral and participatory and slightly crazy that we're talking about the body and blood of a guy that was here 2000 years ago and we believe is still here spiritually but walked the earth 2000 years ago But it is like an act of rebellion against the kingdoms of the world that we walk in. That's what communion is. I needed, I need his body and blood to rescue me from the kingdom of darkness. And it changes everything about who I am and what the future holds for me. That's what this is every week. And so, just a word about how we take um, communion and 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 I will be finished. If you are, if you do not believe that Jesus was the Son of God who came from heaven to earth, um, died on a cross, and then rose from the dead to provide you salvation from your sins and to overcome the power of sin and death, don't take communion. Like and there's no shame in that. My hesitation always has been in taking communion more frequently. That if people come in and they're just not there yet with Jesus, that they'll feel like everybody's looking at them. But there's some shame because they don't participate in it. No one is looking about at you. If they are, that's on them. They should be thinking about Jesus, not about you. You know, I can totally understand that. But please don't, please don't feel that. Like don't don't do it. Why would you? It's crazy. It's crazy to do it unless you believe like this is. What it means. Uh, if you if you if you are a Christian, if you have believed that, if you've received what he's done for you, don't take communion, receive communion. like every week receive it. it is a gift that he has given to you and Paul's point in writing to the Corinthian church about communion was because they were making a mess of it. And so we challenged them, like, examine yourself before you take communion. It wasn't uniting them as a body. It was dividing them as a body because it was a joke to some of them, and they weren't living lives consistent with the gospel and didn't even care. And so he says, examine yourself. And you should examine yourself to find if there are areas of, like, bitterness or unforgiveness or arrogance or self-reliance or hopelessness. Or like paralyzing fear and anxiety that are inconsistent with the story of the gospel. And if there are, and I think maybe that's part of doing it regularly, is so that you, you dig those things out in your heart and you bring them before your, the Lord. And, and if you can repent of them, repent of them. And if you can't repent of them, beg God to help you by the power of his spirit. To believe the gospel in that area of your life and to see how this matters in that part of your life Um, that's why it's appealing you know when we have been doing it where you have the chance to come up when you're ready it's appealing to do it that way is because you have a chance to examine what's in your heart and so we as a church will take it most weeks there's no prescription i don't think to take it every single week but it's a priority for us and this is why